Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Story time. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One of the most terrifying experiences I had as a backcountry park ranger was dealing with what people refer to as shadow people. It was in the spring of 97, and I was working for the federal government. 
My duties consisted of being the only law enforcement officer in a small national park near Lake Tahoe. The majority of my time there was spent in solitude, patrolling by vehicle, boat, or on foot, looking for campers who overstayed their welcome, finding lost fishermen, or people who got turned around hiking in the woods. Shadow men are often reported to be seen at night when encountering them. They are described as tall figures that stand very still, usually in doorways or passageways when encountered by the witness. The first encounter I had with one was actually when I was walking along a trail far from any campsite or place any human could be. It was probably close to 3 in the morning. My location was along the edge of a heavily forested part of our park, bordering onto private property owned by a hunting club. It's very rugged, mountainous terrain covered with lots of pine trees and oak with extremely steep inclines leading up to high elevation mountain peaks that tower above the tree line. This particular area of the park is a notorious hotspot for Bigfoot activity, and although I never saw one there, I've spoken with other staff members who have. I can remember walking along that trail in the night with my light shining all around me as I walked, looking down at the ground where my feet were stepping. The light reflecting off the dirt making it easier to see where I was going because seeing out there is pretty tough. There was no moonlight this night, and you couldn't really tell with anything the way it was shining, but occasionally, it seemed as if a beam of bright starlight would peek through a hole in the canopy right above, just making a brief enough appearance before disappearing behind some clouds drifting overhead. My mind began to wander, thinking about work and family, and all of a sudden, I think my sixth sense started working overtime. I jumped out of my skin. It felt as if somebody had grabbed me by the hair with their hand. Then this jolt of electricity ran through my entire body, as if I had gotten shocked. I felt extremely nauseated, like I had to vomit. I decided to turn back. I could tell there was just something very wrong. I think there are some kind of demonic entities that feed off human fear that rotate around these woods. That's why they only come out at night. I am 29 now. This incident happened when I was 7 years old. I don't have many details of the sighting other than my aunts and uncles, who were originally from MS, lived in the town of Coos Bay, Oregon. I have no idea how far we drove to camp that year. It was the only time I had ever been to Oregon and probably the only time I will ever go. Nearest town, Reedsport and Florence, Oregon. Nearest road, observed, in July of 1978, when I was just seven years old, I traveled to Oregon with my family to visit relatives. We spent three weeks in the state, and I was lucky enough to see what I think was Bigfoot. We had camped in an area that was dense and close to a shallow river. It was almost like the camp was a bald spot with a wall of brush and trees around it. There was a trail that led to the shallow river and although it probably wasn't far, it seemed so to me. The late afternoon was sunny and warm, and everyone but my cousin, my uncle, and myself went to look for herds of elk or antelope. We had campers to sleep in, and my uncle and my cousin were both napping when this sighting occurred. I was outside one of the campers playing when I heard a rustling of underbrush. I never smelled anything that I can remember or heard a sound other than the rustling. When I looked up, I noticed that a small sapling, 
maybe the size of the end of a baseball bat, just bent completely over. This sapling was behind a thick wall of what appeared to be some sort of a berry bush. I am not sure what kind, though. I was curious and walked over to where I had seen the sapling bend over, thinking that there was a squirrel hanging onto it or something. That is when a large hand reached out from behind this brush and grabbed a handful of berries. I had to be 8 or 10 feet away at the time. The hand was huge with long reddish brown hair. It was clear that it was a hand and not a paw. I stood there in total shock. When I managed to run, I ran for my life. It did not chase me or anything, but I saw all that I wanted to see of it. The hand was scary enough, I probably would have died of fright had I seen the rest of it. I got back into camp, which was not far away, but far enough for my napping cousin and uncle not to hear anything. I never screamed or made a sound, I just ran and sat as close to that camper as I could. I realized when I sat down in the fine dirt that I had wet my shorts. I was 7 years old and I had never done that before. I kept my mouth shut until my mother and my other uncles and aunts, that were from Oregon, got back from antelope or elk sightseeing. I told them everything, and they told me that it had to have been a bear. I described the color of the hair, and I was told that it must have been black hair that I had seen, because this area only had black bears. I wasn't stupid. I knew the difference between a hand and a paw and the difference between reddish brown and black. I managed to let them convince me that it must have been a bear, and we left and came back to our home state of Mississippi. A few years later, I was in sixth grade. We had a library period and we could look for and check out books. I found a book with a black cover, and if I am not mistaken, the title was Bigfoot. I hurried to check this book out and read it from cover to cover. It wasn't until that moment that I figured out that the animal that I had seen those years earlier had a name. I had never been so excited in my life. Ever since, I have been interested in all sightings, shows, books, etc., of the Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Yeti, Skunkape. I have thought about telling my story for years, but I, like everyone else, have been afraid of the teasing and skepticism of others. My family says we believe that you believe what you saw. I will believe it until the day I die. I am 29 now, and I hope that the mystery will be solved in my lifetime. My husband and my son believe me more than my mom, dad, aunts, uncles, and cousins. I am very genuine and honest, and I would never lie about. Something like that. I don't know why I was one of the chosen people to have had the opportunity to see even just a tiny part of this mysterious creature. I figured I'd just ask God when I get to heaven. During my years as a park ranger, I encountered things that would terrify the most tenacious trekker. However, nothing on God's earth has ever given me as much cause for existential dread as the undertunnels of the Grand Canyon. Those treacherous tunnels were not carved by human hands, and they certainly were not intended for human eyes. I have heard so many tales of uncovered underground passages in the Grand Canyon. It's not a new concept. But there's a difference between a hidden passage and the undertunnels. I probably should have left this place long ago, but I think I'm too afraid. Like Pandora's box, once certain things have been learned, they cannot be unlearned.
I feel I have an obligation to stay here until my dying day. Besides, no matter how far I might be able to run, it would never be far enough. There might be undertunnels beneath all places. I don't actually work as a ranger anymore, but I like to say that I still perform a service to the park because I frequent the bars and other hospitality attractions of the area. I keep an eye and an ear on things. I still hear awful tales. That's how I know I'm not alone. I know there are others who have seen what I saw several years ago. Look, I'm not trying to deter you from coming here. I'm simply saying that you shouldn't ever seek the horrors that hide in the hovels of the Grand Canyon. That only applies to those of you who explore the gorge itself. If you simply want to admire vibrant vistas atop the edges of the canyon, then go for it. Book a tour. It's well worth the experience. But I would strongly advise against exploring what lies in its depths. Most people never stumble upon an entrance to the undertunnels, but why would you take the chance? I hope you will respect my privacy, and that's why I'm going to refer to myself by the nickname that my youngest daughter, Eliza, bestowed upon me, Mr. Danger, the park ranger. And he goes on adventures with his sidekick, Miss Sunshine, the porcupine. Eliza loves her porcupine costume. I have always marveled at my daughter's boundless creativity. My wife, Riley, on the other hand, prefers for us to stick to jollier topics. Why do you fill her head with the idea that you once had such a terrifying job? Riley asked. Because life as a financial advisor is so dull in comparison, I replied. Boo. Boring. Eliza groaned, making a farting noise. Exactly what I want to say to my boss every day, I said. Before any of you start panicking that I've been traumatizing my 10-year-old daughter with detailed accounts of horrifying things that happened to me, I only tell ghost stories. Never anything real. Stories of trolls in the rocks and alien visitors. Perhaps it helps me deal with my trauma to create fictional horror stories. Can I tell a spooky story next? Eliza asked. I grinned and said, go for it, Miss Sunshine. It's the story of a witch who once Eliza began. No witches, I firmly stated. And after that conversation, earlier this evening, I was forced to relive the most haunting night of my entire life. The night I spent in the belly of the Grand Canyon, tirelessly hunting for two teenage girls who had gone missing. I hoped and prayed for an easy search and rescue job. I feared that I would find two injured spelunkers in some hard-to-reach crevice. That was my worst-case scenario. I had no concept of the real worst-case scenario. Traversing the rocky terrain of the colossal chasm that spans Grand Canyon National Park, I found myself looking up at the wondrous walls that rose like earthly skyscrapers above me. At first, I felt soothed and comforted by their presence. However, as the sun began to set and my torch became my new guide, those canyon walls shapeshifted into something far more insidious. They no longer felt like warm blankets. They felt like the walls of my coffin. My harrowing thoughts were interrupted by the fluttering wings of a crow that circled above me. I ignored the creature, pressing onwards, but I could feel its black eyes boring into the crown of my head. It was watching me as I walked. When I was a park ranger, I like to think of myself as a man who had a strong affinity with all animals, but that cawing crow evoked a frightful feeling in my heart. 
even as a whippersnapper on the job, and one who, at that point in my life, hadn't personally experienced anything terrible, my animal instinct was well honed. Come on, Mr. Danger, I told myself. You're not about to be bested by a crow, are you? What would Miss Sunshine say if she could see you now? I clutched my torch tightly in my right hand and started waving it around in a manic, frantic motion, attempting to shoo the bird away. At that moment, I was startled by the sudden sound of footsteps from the darkness ahead of me. With lightning-fast reflexes, I shone the torch light in the direction of the sound. Somebody emerged from the side of a rock, and their flashlight came into view. Steady. It's me, Jack cried. I thought you might want some help with the search. Any luck? I've found something quite promising. Jack, as I've named him for the purpose of this story, was a fellow park ranger. He was a wizened old fellow, and I always viewed him as a second father figure. He was a little odd, and his jokes often elicited eye rolls, but I'd never been so relieved to see his goofy grin. Hands still trembling, my light erratically danced and darted across the rocks between us. No sign of them. You scared the absolute shit out of me, Jack, I sighed. It's a good job I wore my brown trousers. Jack laughed and beckoned for me to follow him. So, what's your promising find? I asked. Well, let's just say we should be home and putting our feet up in no time at all. I think I've found the cave system that the two girls must have explored, he explained, leading the way. It's not one that I recognize, truth be told, but I suppose I might be getting forgetful in my old age. Anyway, I'm almost certain they entered it. There was a campfire by the entrance. Recently burned out. Must be them. F. I groaned. Last thing I want to do at 9 o'clock on a Saturday evening is fish some dumb, unprepared, injured kids out of a cave. Better than fishing some dumb, unprepared, dead kids out of a cave, eh? Jack pointed out. Let's hope your version of events ends up being the true one. I solemnly nodded my head, thinking of the countless lives that had been lost in that canyon. Whenever I had cause to moan or groan, I reminded myself of why I'd taken that job. I reminded myself of the people I was trying to protect. It was on nights like those that a ranger had to prove their worth. I prayed that we would find two live hikers. Ha, huh, Jack said. What? I asked. As we rounded a tall stack of rocks, my friend scratched his chin thoughtfully, casting his light onto a smoldering pile of sticks. I was looking at the burnt-out campfire, as promised, but there was no sign of the mysterious cave entrance. Just a solid canyon wall, as there had always been in that spot, as far as I could recall. I was certain that Jack, who was 30 years my senior, had started to lose his marbles. But none of the park rangers had the heart to tell him to hang up the hat. It was what he loved. The park was the thing that kept him alive. I know you're gonna laugh, Jack sighed. But I'm telling you that there was a cave entrance right in that very spot, kiddo. I mean, I was right about the campfire, wasn't I? I wasn't gonna accuse you of lying, Jack, I replied. It's dark, and neither of us can see shit out here. Even with these flashlights, the human mind is a fickle thing. It loves to play tricks. You know that. But let's not despair. We must be on the right track. 
You're right about that. The campfire is a good sign. Yeah, I suppose you're oh. Jack stopped, looking to the side of my head. What? I asked. He chuckled. Got a little something on your shoulder, partner. I swiveled my head to the left and screamed. There, staring back at me with hollow eyes, was the black crow that had been stalking me. It was silently perching on my shoulder. I hadn't even felt it there. It hadn't so much as made a sound or moved into my field of vision. It was a gaunt, ghastly statue, posing with such stillness that it might as well have been a taxidermy bird. Jack cackled until he wheezed and spluttered. He continued to be of no use whatsoever, whilst I flailed around in a mad panic, striving to release the creature from my shoulder. Eventually, thankfully, it flew away. To my park ranger friend, it was an amusing incident. To me, it was something much worse. I didn't like the entire situation. The disappearing cave entrance. The eerily serene bird. None of it. Not one bit. As I said, I have good instincts. And I don't fear animals, for the record. I never have. I care deeply even for nature's most ominous and overlooked creatures. Crows had never bothered me before that fateful night, but that crow was like none I'd ever seen before. I didn't know what was wrong with it, but I knew that the mere sight of it filled me with immense horror. It was dangerous, and I'm not talking about the fun and mischief that Mr. Danger and Miss Sunshine love. This was real danger. Danger that I'd forgotten all about until Eliza reminded me of something that had been hiding in the darkened recesses of my fractured, forlorn mind. Wait, Jack said. It moved. Suddenly, my park ranger friend was sprinting past me, so I turned to see what had stirred him. And then I saw it. On the canyon wall opposite to the one we had been facing, there was a cave entrance. It was one I was certain I'd never seen in that area before, and that made me truly start to question everything. Maybe Jack hadn't lost his marbles. That could only mean something more unsettling was happening. Either we were both incompetent park rangers or something unnatural had happened. Jack, I started. Let's just talk about this for a moment. Jack had already reached the mouth of the cave, and he was jubilantly dancing in the entrance. Before I even had a chance to talk about the horrible feeling in the center of my chest, I spotted something that snapped me out of my feverish stupor. Jack. I warned. Wolf. Jack immediately stopped dancing in the entrance and cast his torch light onto a large, gray wolf that was slinking towards him. It did not growl. It did not make a sound, in fact. It simply took long, purposeful strides towards my frozen friend. Easy, buddy, Jack calmly said. I don't have any treats for you, and I'm not as tasty as I look. I promise. Now, ordinarily, I'd scare you off with the rubber bullets, but I'm a little unprepared this evening, I have to admit. So, I'm warning you not to get too close. Otherwise, you'll get the butt of the torch. Jack, I said, speaking with the same air of calmness. Keep your cool. I've been doing this a lot longer than you, kid. Don't worry about F. The wolf moved abnormally quickly, pouncing towards Jack, who slammed his torch into the animal's face. The creature, along with Jack's torch, went flying to the ground. It did not whimper or even falter for more than a second. It was calm. 
Too calm. The wolf simply clambered back to its feet and eyeballed the now torchless Jack. I shone my own light onto the cave entrance, illuminating my defenseless friend and the wolf that had started to prowl towards him once more. Jack, just let me I started. I have to head into the cave, Jack cried. In a flash, my reckless ranger companion had sprinted into the cave. The darkness swallowed him and the wolf that was hot on his tail. I ran after the pair of them, lighting the way with my shaky torch. Entering the passage through the canyon wall, I tried to focus all of my attention on Jack and the wolf, who were already out of sight in the labyrinth of tunnels, but I couldn't help fixating on the peculiar noises that engulfed me. Rocks were shifting, as if the canyon were continuously reshuffling and restructuring itself. Jack! I screeched. I tumbled through a hole and cut my elbows on a rocky slope that led down to a sprawling, cavernous opening. I scrambled to my feet and quickly picked up my torch, fearing what I might see in the center of the underground space. In the center of the cave, I expected to see the wolf tearing my friend limb from limb. What I actually saw was far worse because it couldn't be explained. Jack was there, but he was not facing a wolf. He was facing something indescribably horrible. A gangly creature towered over him, skin like a decaying corpse, and limbs twice as long as those of any ordinary human. It was a monstrously magnified version of a person. No, not a person. A witch. A skinwalker, as Native Americans would no doubt call it. The stuff of legends. A monster that I had only ever seen in frightening fables. Not something real. And yet, my eyes were telling me a different truth. I could see the thing with my own eyes. The thing that goes by so many different names in so many different places. Still, no matter what name it is given, everybody agrees that it is an unholy thing. An abomination not meant for our world. Death incarnate. Jack. I near soundlessly gasped. My friend began to levitate, his writhing body's ascension orchestrated by the gnarled, brittle fingers of the inhuman thing before it. The witch, a silent and serene puppeteer, continued to raise her hand. Utilizing some unseen evil force, she moved my wriggling friend higher and higher into the air, watching his illuminated form and my torchlight. The creature was as still and unwavering as the crow and the wolf. And that was when I pieced the parts of the puzzle together. I remembered the feeling of being stalked by the crow. Those beastly black eyes. A sudden snapping sound broke me out of my disturbing daydream, instead thrusting me into a much more deeply disturbing taste of reality. Jack released a scream that ricocheted off the walls of the enclosed space, as his legs bent the wrong way. The bones broke, one by one, and protruded from the back of his knees as his calves were pulled up to his waist. His jaw started to droop, and I realized that he was moments away from losing consciousness. As morbid as it sounds, I prayed that he would faint. I prayed that he would not be conscious during his own painful demise. As the witch began to snap his arms inwards and contort his body into a box shape, my friend's head finally lolled forwards. Looking at his mangled, compressed form, I realized that he wasn't unconscious. He was dead. At that moment, the rocks on one of the walls crumbled away, revealing a stack of boxes and, surprisingly, a red wooden door. 
As the witch opened one of the boxes and began to crumple my friend's mangled, desecrated carcass into it, I crept around the back of her. She busied herself with the act of packing her latest victim into a wooden, gold-lined treasure box, and she did not seem to notice the torchlight that was moving around her, as I inches closer and closer to the red door on the far wall. Stealthily, I made it across the cave and placed my hand on the door handle. The creature screeched. In a blind panic, I swung the door open and closed it behind me. To my utter surprise, I was facing a long unlit tunnel. A tunnel constructed of red bricks on the walls, floor, and ceiling. The real undertunnels. This was more than just a cave system. It was, I realized, the witch's lair. There was no way I could survive by going backwards, so I had to push forwards. Lighting the way with my torch, I ran blindly through the unlit red brick tunnel, not knowing what I might find around every bend. Suddenly, there were multiple forking passageways. I had no idea which way to go. I just knew that I'd heard the red door open behind me and heard the slow, steady, still serene padding footsteps of the thing that had brutally massacred Jack. Help! The voice cried from a tunnel to my left, so I immediately followed the sound. Cowering in the dead-end fork of the tunnel was a girl. She must have been 18 or 19, fully kitted out in hiking gear, and coated from head to toe in blood. It didn't look like hers. Oh, thank God. She whimpered. We have to get out of here. That thing is coming for us. Where's your friend? I asked. The girl's lip trembled. Alicia? She's. She's gone. Alicia. So, you're Daniela, right? I asked. She nodded. I'm sorry about your friend, Daniela. I lost someone too. But we're going to make it out of here. I promised. I think we should go back to the red door, Daniela said. We know the way back from there. I shook my head, helping Daniela to her feet, and pointed a finger to my ear, indicating for her to listen. I was trying to show the girl that it wasn't safe to go back the way we came. But I couldn't hear the witch's padding footsteps. I suddenly realized that not hearing her was far worse. Where was she? What? Daniela asked. I don't hear her. That doesn't mean she's not there. Come on, I said. I led a begrudging Daniela farther into the depths of the tunnels, shaking as we rounded every corner. Every time I saw the coast was clear, it was both a relief and a fright. Not knowing where she might be hiding was a horror like no other. And then, from the depths of the brick tunnels, we heard a sound. Crying. It's a trick, Daniela protested. Don't go towards it. It sounds like a girl, I said. Maybe Alicia's still alive. I followed the sound of the crying, thankful for the fact that the tunnel no longer seemed to be forming off into different directions. I was relatively certain that it was more of an interconnected circuit of tunnels, rather than a maze. All routes would have led me to the same place, eventually. A wooden, colorless door. And there was crying on the other side. Daniela sobbed and said, don't go in there. I ignored her, motivated by a sense of duty and, perhaps, a smidge of stupidity. I burst through the door and found myself in a cavern much larger than the last one. And, thankfully, there was a cave entrance at the far side. I could see the outside world. It was a horribly dark night, 
but it looked like a glowing beacon of hope. Anything was lighter than the hellish undertunnels of the witch. Casting the light around the cave, I eventually found Alicia, pinned down by rocks on her arms. Hauntingly close to freedom. She was staring blankly ahead and bawling her eyes out. When she saw my flashlight, she screamed. Help! Alicia wailed. I'm trapped. It definitely felt like a trap, but I wouldn't have been able to live with myself if I hadn't tried. Moreover, yet again, my instinct was telling me that I was looking at Alicia. It wasn't the witch. I could just feel it in my bones. I darted over to the girl and heaved the rocks from her arms. There were cuts and bruises along her limp limbs, so I hoisted Alicia to her feet. She screeched when she saw Daniela. Get her away from me, Alicia cried. Alicia? Daniela replied. It's me. Alicia shook her head and gently nodded at the far wall of the cave. I turned my head to see what the girl had been eyeballing when I first entered the cavernous room. I was horrified to see a girl's body on the ground. Lifeless and twisted into an unimaginable shape. Not just any girl. Daniela. There were two of them. As I turned my torchlight back to the Daniela who had just followed me from the undertunnels, she nonchalantly threw a smile our way. And yet, as calm as she may have been, it was the most unhinged and malicious smile I've ever seen. Alicia and I slowly backed towards the cave exit, watching as the fake Daniela started to grow in height. Her limbs started to elongate and her hair fell out. Within seconds, I was staring at the horrific creature that had crushed my friend alive. Run! I screamed. As we sprinted for the exit, it began to close. The rocks shifted around it, slowly shrinking the hole that was our only path to freedom. With seconds to spare, Alicia dived through the opening, and I followed. Turning to face the closing hole, I caught one final glimpse of the inhuman creature, before it was entombed in the wall of the Grand Canyon. I have never told anyone that tale. And I was a park ranger for many years after that. If anything, understanding that such things existed was my reason for continuing. There are other reasons that I eventually abandoned that line of service. But my duty has never really died. And, when Eliza reminded me of witches, I realized it was time to finally tell my story. You may or may not choose to believe me. None of that matters. But, Please, I beg you, do not enter the undertunnels of the Grand Canyon. At around 14 years old, in 2009, I was sleeping in bed with my mom. My dad wasn't home and she didn't want to sleep alone. I hated the dark so I pounced at the chance to have another human present while asleep. The house we lived in had a lot of paranormal activity that friends and family also saw, so it was a welcomed invitation. To give context to the location and experience, I want to explain the layout. The bedroom door led straight to a huge bed in the center. There was a bedside on either side of the bed. The bed was a king-size mattress that rested atop a tall bedboard. They didn't have a bed frame. Instead, the bedboard base was approximately the same height as a tall couch. You had to climb up onto it. The bedside was incredibly low next to the bed, and you had to half slide off the bed towards it to reach for a drink or phone. In my case, I had my hearing aid and phone at the bedside and we said goodnight. 
Lights out. There was nothing to note about falling asleep, and no strange feelings. I was deep, deep asleep and suddenly awoke with a huge jolt. I was so shocked and confused, and I leaned forward to check the time on my brick Nokia phone. Remember that I'm having to reach across the vast expanse of the bed, and slide down towards the low bedside cabinet. I tapped the middle button on the phone and the bluish-white glow lit up in a little bubble just above the phone and next to the bedside. I saw a huge being crouching next to me. It was directly across from my body and face while I had been sleeping. My arm passed its right shoulder to reach out and tap the phone on the bedside. I flung backward in horror, and the phone light started to dim. I could see it was a white or paleish complexion with almost textured skin that clung to their body tightly and incredibly lean. The memory that has always haunted me was how unfathomably large it was. The arms were resting upon its knees as it crouched next to me, heaving with dark black eyes staring into my own. Its face did not move, and I could recognize in its eyes that it was registering that I was freaking out, but it did not move, blink or react. I don't know why my awareness did not bother it. It just continued to bore into my eyes as the light faded out from the room and it turned back into the blanket of darkness. I was petrified and froze for a few moments, trying not to breathe. My mum hadn't woken by my movements and I didn't want to make a sound in case it suddenly advanced on me. I couldn't grab my hearing aid and phone to acquire more senses to deal with the situation. I didn't want to reach out and try my luck again. I was trying to process how horrifying it looked. I lay there trying to figure out how to respond. I knew it was still right there. I couldn't believe how it was tall. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style enough while in a crouched position to be directly parallel to my face lying on this highly stacked bed structure. I couldn't stand the fact that it was directly in line with my face, and I could still feel it watching. I didn't know what to do because its limbs were so long, and I felt like it could thrash toward me instantaneously. I couldn't figure out its intentions and why it had not advanced. Its torso was tight and slender as it had been raggedly breathing but its appearance did not disguise the strength in its body. It looked like it was coiled to move at any moment. I slowly rolled over and prayed for sleep to come. I think I stared into the darkness behind my mother's back for a while and then it all went blank as I somehow fell back to sleep. It's the one story out of all the encounters that I've had which still disturbs me. It's the one that is truly unexplainable and unknown. My wife recently showed me a picture of a crawler after listening to a podcast and I was left with my mouth hanging agape. It was like being next to the bed. Crawler? You tell me. I had been watching television for some time when I glanced at the clock and noticed the time, August 22, 1993, 
at 3.35 a.m., then back to the TV. It was at that moment that I noticed odd lights in front of the hill opposite my house. There was an object about 100 yards away at an altitude of roughly 150 feet. The object moved slowly. It had huge lighted windows, 13 in all, along its side that appeared to be 8 feet wide and 6 feet high. Each had round corners and they were approximately 6 feet apart. The altitude of the object was lower than any plane that I had ever seen. I made my way to the bedroom and retrieved a pair of binoculars. The object moved parallel to my position and towards the ocean. It was impossible to see the outline and therefore the shape of the object, a fact that bothers me to this day. The windows were, however, highly visible due to a bright light that appeared to be coming from inside though the source of the light could not be seen. I opened the living room window and discovered that the object did not emit any sound. Through the binoculars, I could see people on the left side of the object sitting at tables that were in every window. There were also three or four people walking abreast, to and from the front and rear of the object, sometimes passing as groups without having to make room. There were tables on the other side as well with people sitting at them, mostly three to four people at a table. Everyone was dressed in the same, grey uniforms with high collars, which reminded me of something out of the medieval era. None of the people had any hair on their heads and none wore hats or helmets of any sort. They all appeared to be very similar in size and slightly built. They were also very pale. Most of the people sitting seemed to be engaged in drinking from extra-large white, luminous cups. One group, however, was staring continuously down at the table as if they were watching something that could not be seen by me. By now, I was sweating and shaking and having a hard time holding on to the binoculars. I was also having difficulty swallowing. The object then continued to move slowly out over the water. It then went towards Conception Bay, disappearing from view. In 1998, I was a senior in high school, taking a late-night ride with my boyfriend near his house in Naperville, Lyle, Illinois. We were sneaking out to have a cigarette. As we were driving along a street, slowly with both windows completely down, had a Mustang and didn't want to wake the neighborhood with his loud exhaust, we heard a loud screech in the distance. We looked at each other and confirmed that we both had heard the same thing. He slowed down to a complete stop to listen. All of a sudden, coming from the left side of the driver's side of the front windshield appeared this gargoyle-like thing. It was about 4 feet in length, with wings, front claws, reptilian-like skin, and big glowing eyes. The color is hard to remember, it was almost transparent, like purple. As it flew in front of the windshield, literally over the hood of the car, it stopped suddenly and proceeded to scare the crap out of us both. Its eye protruded from its head and it made a snarling-like gesture. It definitely was trying to scare us. It then flew off or disappeared. This happened so quickly. The adrenaline in our veins is pumped instantly from the fright. Immediately after the thing flew off, I looked to the left at my boyfriend and every hair on both of his arms was standing straight up. Again, we both confirmed what we had seen and were bewildered. 20 years later, I still wonder what we had seen. I've researched on my own on the net.
I have found that what I had witnessed has been possibly been seen and maybe still out there. This sighting makes me a believer that there is another dimension that we cannot see. It sometimes may show its face. This thing, this entity was not nice. It was demonic, it used its power over us to scare us beyond anything that I've ever felt before. I drive by the location all the time. I live near it. The location is near a wooded area, a subdivision and, get this, an abbey and monastery. The land that we were traveling on and also the wooded area, perhaps it lived in, was once land owned by the abbey. Is there a connection? I'd love to know. I'm from Western North Carolina in the Blue Ridge Mountains. I'm a deer hunter and that's where I had my encounter with the big gun on the afternoon of December. Three deer had run out of the thicket through the bottom and up the ridge past me when. I say running I mean they were running for their lives. I could tell they weren't running from a rutting buck but I got ready anyway. About 15 minutes later I hadn't seen anything else and it was pretty dark by then. I then spotted something on the edge of the pond and it was big. I looked through my scope but I couldn't see anything. I lowered the gun and I'd see movement again. I know I was looking at the right spot. It's pretty dark by now so I started packing everything up and I was about 35 feet high in a popular tree in a climbing stand so it took about 5 minutes to get to the ground. Once I got to the ground it was black in the woods. I started shaking my stand off the tree and that's when I heard a scream, the loudest thing I've ever heard in my 32 years. This scream started out high and ended up as a low growling sound. I would say it lasted maybe 4 to 6 seconds. I hit the ground and cut off my light. I could hear it walking on two legs in the creek bottom. It was super thick down there and man could not walk through it in the dark without a light. It sounded like it was coming up the ridge toward me and I had to do something. I ripped around into a big oak tree close to me. When I did it took off and ran back through the creek bottom and into the pines, like its butt was on fire. I got my stand and got the hell out. Two days later I took a friend back in there with me to look at the limbs it broke while running. It was on white oak limbs 3 inches thick and was broken off 6 feet high off of the ground. The mountain laurel bushes were mowed down. It was a sight to see. I awoke one night in a state which I can only explain as a spasm, my body was rigid. I could not move a muscle and felt like something was on top of me. I fought to get movement back in my body. I could not turn my head or move at all. It was like I was having a fight to get control of my body. After a few panic-stricken moments, I could just barely move my fingers, only a little bit. I then felt that there was more than just a spasm. I felt dirty and touched. It was a horrible feeling from deep inside me. I could barely move my toes, again very slightly. My throat felt like it was being held. I could feel something was on top of me. My hands were by my side, but it felt like they were around my own throat, holding tightly. I was using all my might to break free from this spasmodic state. Then could feel something breathing into my left ear, the sound of a growl-like noise right next to my ear. I struggled to move my head to the left, like breaking free from a stranglehold. I could barely see the outline of a head, a big long head next to my own face. 
As the spasm-like feeling started to wear off, a tiny bit at a time, I could work out that this thing on top of me looked like a lizard, newt thing. It was like a blending together of all that was around it, or maybe invisible. I'm not very sure which, but I could see it clearly as the seconds passed. It was a reptilian. I growled at it, or I think I did. My mind and my body gave all it could to do so. I bared my teeth at it and I could feel it could read my mind. I was swearing at it and shouting all sorts of obscenities at it. I felt violated and used. The next thing, it was quickly off of me and was standing to one side of the bottom of my bunk bed. A light came through the thin gap in the curtains. There were different shades of golden light which also had very small particles inside it, like dust or small stars that moved around like little bright lights. This reptilian creature was about six feet tall. I could sense it was either proud or happy with itself, maybe both. I tried to sit up as best I could and through my mind, I swore at it again. The creature walked forward and stepped into the light beam. As it did, the feet and legs vanished into the light. The more the creature moved forward towards the window, the more of it vanished. After it was gone I felt relaxed, but I could still feel where I was held around my throat. I felt I was physically violated by this horrendous monster. I awoke to a bright sunny day. I could hear my mother downstairs, washing up and doing housework. I lay in my bed and didn't move a muscle. I ran the incident through my mind again and, yes, I could still feel where I was held around my throat. I know this happened. My mind, heart, and soul know that this happened. For the life of me, I could not run downstairs to explain to my mother about this. Who would have believed it? How would my parents have handled such a thing? I did not know what to do. Since that night, my stepfather passed away. I asked my mother if she believed in aliens or UFOs. She replied that my stepfather said once that he saw a UFO near Brighton, East Sussex while at sea in the 1960s and he swore that it was a UFO, but only told my mother this. I never told my mother about my experience, as I thought it would be too harrowing for her to hear. What do I do about my experience? I would love to do something about it. It may help somebody, as I am being very honest. Things like this should be disclosed. An answer has to be found on why this is happening. I've struggled with this for several reasons as it regards the death of a close friend that is possibly tied to her very traumatic encounter with a large male Sasquatch. Attached you will find a photo of my dear friend Pamela, Pam, Porter from Ohio. I first met Pam in March 2009. We instantly became best friends. There was such a strong connection it was as if we had known each other forever. We were on an expedition at the time I met her and it was immediately very apparent that not only was Pam a fearless researcher she was a very she was very determined to have a direct encounter with Sasquatch. As we visited and got to know each other. She told me she would often go jogging alone late at night in the forest near her home hoping for a face to face. She pushed the envelope in every possible way and I fear that the encounter she had in 2007 in Hanobia, Oklahoma may have led to her death. There was a lot of buzz on that 2009 trip about what had happened to her in Oklahoma and she very graciously shared the details with the entire group. 
She was very matter-of-fact about all of it. I will do my best to recount it to you and in her own words. Pam's account. When I arrived at the expedition in Oklahoma I learned that there was an area where there had been several encounters with a very aggressive male. I volunteered to spend the night camping alone in that area. Three other members took me to the spot this male was known to frequent and helped me get my tent set up. We were waiting for MM to bring me a thermal camera and some recording equipment and I asked them to move away way about 150 yards as I could sense that the male was close. It was late afternoon nearing dusk. I became aware that the male was indeed very close. I was catching glimpses of him through the underbrush and he began shaking trees and vocalizing. I held my ground and began talking calmly to him. His aggression grew but I still held my ground and before I knew it I was being hit by what I believe was infrasound. My entire body began vibrating and I was frozen in place unable to move. Apparently, I keyed my radio a couple of times but was unable to communicate with the guys. They were on the radio with MM relating to him what was happening and he ordered them to run to me as quickly as they could and get on either side of me to block the infrasound if possible. I don't remember much about them running to me but apparently, they heard the male moving away as they arrived. It took a good while to regain my composure and be able to speak but I still wanted to spend the night. MM offered to stay there with me. The rest of the night was uneventful and the male did not return. The next morning I woke completely drained and exhausted. I was unable to participate in any of the activities of that day and ended up leaving the expedition early on the following day and driving home. Over the next few weeks, I was so drained and exhausted that when I would go to work I would end up sleeping in the conference room all day. I eventually saw my doctor and as soon as they got the results of my blood work he called and told me to come to the hospital immediately. I learned that half of my blood volume had mysteriously disappeared. They never could find out what had caused it. I had a blood transfusion that day and they continued every two weeks for months until I was finally able to go to one transfusion a month. At the time I met Pam she was still getting blood transfusions every month and she was still fearless and pushing for another encounter. She was diagnosed with cancer later that year and it had already spread when it was diagnosed. She died in July 2010 at 37 years old and I'm still heartbroken over her loss especially so because she was very afraid of death. It's so ironic that she was fearless in life but afraid to die. I did a great deal of research on infrasound after being present when two different friends were hit by it. We had proof that it was indeed infrasound that incapacitated one of my friends as he was wearing a recorder with a mic on his hat when it happened and the recorder picked up the top end of the infrasound range. It also picked up a buzz at the moment he was hit. His experience was brief but it took him to the ground and he had blood in his urine for two weeks after that event. I had a friend who was a former Navy pilot who had since retired and was a military contractor working for Leon Panetta. He shared a lot of information with me about infrasound including the fact that the military not only uses it for crowd control but they can target a single individual in the middle of a crowd and take them down. Here is a summary of what my research revealed. Infrasound is a very low frequency sound below 20 Hz which can travel long distances and easily penetrate most buildings and vehicles. Transmission of long wavelength sound creates biophysical effects such as nausea, loss of bowel control, 
disorientation, vomiting, potential internal organ damage, and in extreme instances death. Infrasound is in band and meaning it does not lose its properties when it changes mediums such as from air to tissue. Infrasound induces stress and causes the body to secrete the hormone cortisol produced by the adrenal gland. Cortisol plays a vital role in preparing our body for stressful fight-or-flight episodes. During long-term stress or if cortisol production is prolonged its effects on the human body can be deadly. They include hypoglycemia, brain damage, weakening of the immune system, weight gain, diabetes, and high blood pressure. Infrasound waves hug the ground, travel for long distances without losing strength, and are unstoppable. Not much amplitude is needed to produce negative effects in the human body and even mild exposure requires several hours or even days to reverse the symptoms. I personally believe that infrasound is not the only weapon in the Sasquatch arsenal but I do know it's one of them. Here is how I gained a stalker. When I was 19 I went on Craigslist casual encounters to find some NSA hookups. 99% of the people that responded to my ad were either dudes or fake. One girl messaged me and she seemed cute and was real. She lived about an hour away from me and we chatted back and forth and followed each other on MySpace, it was 2008. So we decide to meet up, get dinner then go to a hotel and do things. I get to her house and am greeted by a drunk middle-aged woman in the driveway, her mom. I eventually meet X. She was about 100 pounds heavier than all the pictures, had a huge neck tattoo that said F and had multiple facial piercings and rainbow-colored hair. I was horny and swallowed all my standards. Had dinner, went to the hotel and banged it out. Next day I drop her off at her house she said, thanks I needed that see you never. She unfriended me on MySpace and made no attempt to contact me after so I was like cool a one night stand. About a week later it's late at night and I hear pounding on my front door. This freak found my address in the phone book and wanted to see me. She rambled about getting kicked out of the house and her mom told her to go live with her boyfriend. I explained that is not possible. To get to my house she has to take a bus to a train station in Providence Re, take a train to Boston South Station then take another train south to my town then walk 5 miles to my house. Wicked spooky, I am really freaked out and she starts crying and asks to get dropped off at the train station and I oblige. Before she gets out of the car I tell her I'm really not comfortable with her and that I don't think she should contact me again. For the next few weeks my phone gets blown up non-stop by her always at sleeping hours. All day and all night calls and text. I changed my number and stopped using my AIM messenger. I finally got some breathing room and a month or so passed. Zero dark 30 I'm sleeping. Pounding on the door again she's back this time with some morbidly obese gothic girl. They start yelling at me about how since we had sex I'm her boyfriend now. My mom eventually comes to the door and starts yelling at them and threatens to call the police. They leave and drive off in some shitball car. They showed up at my work a few days later and they did not realize I was interning for a public safety department at a local college spooked them. I told the people I worked with about them and they spooked them straight since the guys look like police officers. I have not heard from her in 8 years so I think they did a good job.
However, there are lots of freaks on the internet and they seem to live on Craigslist. About six years ago, my now husband, Josh, and I moved to Northern Kentucky for work. Northern Kentucky is part of a tri-state area with Ohio and Indiana. This was our first apartment that was larger than a shoebox, and we were looking for some extra counter space. We found the perfect microwave cart on Craigslist, so Josh called up to the seller, who seemed perfectly normal. The address was on Wren Road in Ross, which we assumed was in Kentucky. We also assumed, based on our own experiences with waterfront property on the East Coast, that it would be a nice neighborhood, as it was right on the Ohio River. So we mapped out our route and went on our way in our Mustang convertible, with the top down. It was just getting dark outside at this point. After a considerable drive, and after passing the road by accident, we found it. In addition to the street sign, which was mostly hidden by bushes and trees, it was marked with some very faded wooden signs which we couldn't read very well in the dark. Those signs probably should have been our first inclination that something wasn't right, but we vaguely took notice and turned down the street. Upon going over a small hill that included railroad tracks going perpendicular to the road, we bottomed out and lost our muffler. So with our car's now extra loud engine, we came out of the trees into a small trailer park. There were about five trailers on each side of the road, which ended in a cul-de-sac. Immediately we were a bit nervous, having not expected a scene like this. Josh pulled the car in and turned it around so we were facing the exit. Immediately, the inhabitants of the trailer park, who had all been standing together talking, came over and surrounded our car. I was pretty much panicking at this point and was nudging Josh, just wanting to get out of there. The large, beer-bellied, redneck man, who seemed to be the spokesperson of the group, asked angrily what we were doing there. Josh told him we were there about the microwave cart from Craigslist. The man said, Craigslist? Nah, we don't got nothing like that here. What did you say you were looking for? At this point, Josh is calling the woman he had spoken to on the phone, and there are about eight people all around our car. Luckily for us, they were not at the front of the car. The woman answers the phone, Josh realizes we're obviously in the wrong place, apologizes a few times, and we floor it out of there. On the way out we go over the hill and bottom out again. Speaking to the woman on the phone, we realized that she was on Wren Road in Ross Township, Ohio. We set off for her actual residence, and claimed our microwave cart at her nice, normal suburban home. We were scared shitless and our car was even louder than normal, but we were safe. There are plenty of lessons to be learned from others who've dealt with Craigslist creeps, but we still use it when necessary, and haven't really had any actual issues. One lesson we did learn though, riverfront property in the Midwest is the complete opposite of beachfront property on the East Coast. So though we don't live anywhere near the Midwest now, creepy trailer park rednecks? Let's not meet. I've played World of Warcraft since the beginning. I've met some really amazing people and some really awful people. This is about the worst guy I've ever met. I wanted to start raiding for the first time in an expansion called Warlords of Draenor. I was a tank and joined a raiding guild. 
My other tank was a monk. In the beginning, everything was fine. There was a brief moment where I think he was taken aback that I was a girl because he asked me if I didn't realize that warriors couldn't heal but I ignored it and moved on. Monk and I would talk on the side to talk about general tanking strategies, or we would try out things to see if our class was better at different things. There was nothing ever romantic between us because I was in a long-term relationship, ironically she introduced me to WoW. We eventually got to become, what I thought, was close friends. We played for close to a year together. We had also branched out to other co-op games while still playing WoW. At the same time, my girlfriend, now wife, and I were moving where she got an intern opportunity and we were moving maybe an hour away from him. So we decided to meet. The meetup was kind of weird, to be honest. He was kind of awkward but so was I. We just make it through and continue being friends. Another few months go by and Monk and I are still talking and playing pretty consistently. He's quit WoW at this point but we are playing other stuff together. One night I tell him my girlfriend's brother was coming to visit. I hadn't seen him in close to two years because we lived far away so I was incredibly excited. I mentioned my excitement to the monk and he flips out, demanding why her brother is allowed to visit before he visits again, and how is he going to spend his time if I'm not there. I end up flatly telling him that he needs to figure that out by himself. I must have struck a nerve because man goes ballistic and starts spamming my phone with calls that I ignore and messages that I also mute. So he does the next logical move and puts my name, picture, and address on Craigslist personals. I get hounded in my apartment for hours, and I only realize what's happened because someone pulls up the ad on his phone to angrily gesture at it. It's a mess for a while afterwards. We end up staying in a hotel for a few days as we talk to police. The police say they can't really do anything because there's no proof he was the one that did anything. Fine, that's fair. The police also tell me that I need to tell him I don't want to talk to him anymore so I text him and he sends back a message apologizing for putting my information up. I debate filing the restraining order then but I'm so beat down that I choose not to. It's a big mistake. He messages me on everything he can find of me. I block him as soon as I can but he's messaging me on Tumblr and Twitter and Steam and just overall overwhelming me. I file a restraining order. He's quiet for a few months afterwards and I hope that's the end but for one last hurrah, he sends me $200 on Venmo telling me that he did it again and he needs someone to talk to. I just ignore it. It's been two years since everything happened and I started playing WoW again. I'm learning to love it again. We're still on the same server and I worry about running into him but I'm too poor to transfer my characters off so guess I'm stuck. Anyways Tank who got all intense on me, let's not meet. As the day of our big move approached, my friend handed me an old exercise bike she had obtained years ago at a yard sale. We decided it was time to part ways with it, and not wanting to burden ourselves with unnecessary items during the move, I thought of listing it for a mere $100 on a local marketplace. To be honest, I had modest expectations, thinking I might be lucky to get $20 for this relic of a workout machine. To my surprise, someone showed interest almost immediately. A guy named Mark messaged me, 
expressing his excitement about the exercise bike. He was thrilled by the prospect of owning it and was willing to pay the full $100 without any negotiation. Puzzled but not one to question a good deal, I agreed to the sale. We arranged to meet at our old house on the very day we were moving out. It seemed convenient enough, and I figured it would be a safe transaction. As Mark arrived, I could see the genuine excitement in his eyes. It was as if he had stumbled upon a hidden treasure. Without hesitation, he eagerly handed over $100, and started inspecting the 20-year-old exercise bike with delight. The bike, a heavy and somewhat outdated piece of exercise equipment, didn't seem to have any intrinsic value. I couldn't help but wonder why Mark was so enthusiastic about it. However, he didn't seem to mind. He loaded the exercise bike onto his vehicle all by himself, still beaming with joy. The whole situation was both amusing and puzzling. Curiosity got the better of me after the sale. I decided to do some research and googled the model of the exercise bike. Surprisingly, I found that there was absolutely no significant value to it, other than being a heavy piece of scrap metal. It made me chuckle to think that I had just made $100 from something I thought would barely fetch $20. Reflecting on the experience, I realized that sometimes, perceived value can be subjective. What may seem like an old, unwanted item to one person might be a source of genuine excitement for another. Mark walked away with his newfound treasure, and I walked away with an unexpected $100 in pocket. It was a win-win situation, proving that sometimes, the true worth of an item lies in the joy it brings to its new owner, even if that joy is inexplicable to the seller. And so, with one less heavy item to move, I chuckled at the quirks of life and the unexpected turns a simple exercise bike could bring into a day of moving chaos. Moving into my first apartment brought with it the excitement of newfound independence and the need to furnish my humble abode on a budget. Scouring Craigslist for deals, I stumbled upon a listing for a tiny George Foreman grill that seemed to fit my needs perfectly. Little did I know that this seemingly mundane purchase would lead to one of the strangest and unforgettable encounters of my life. Arranging to meet the seller at his apartment, I found myself standing outside a nondescript building, wondering what kind of person I was about to encounter. The door opened, revealing an older, extremely skinny man with a peculiar haircut that reminded me of the circular shape often associated with monks. This gentleman, whom I'll refer to as Mr. Cul-de-sac, warmly invited me inside to showcase the grill. As I entered his sparsely furnished home, I couldn't help but notice the emptiness of the space. There were a few scattered boxes, a dinner table, and not much else. It was a peculiar setting, but my focus remained on the grill I came to purchase. Mr. Cul-de-sac, eager to demonstrate the grill's capabilities, offered to cook a snack for me. The bizarre turn of events unfolded as he placed three pieces of bologna on the tiny George Foreman grill. The sizzle of the meat and the aroma filled the room, creating an odd ambience. I watched, slightly bewildered, as he meticulously cooked the bologna. It was an unexpected cooking show in the midst of what should have been a straightforward transaction. To my surprise, Mr. Cul-de-sac then proceeded to devour the freshly grilled bologna right before my eyes. 
It was an eccentric display that left me wondering if I had unintentionally stumbled into a parallel culinary universe. The strangeness of the situation peaked when, without warning, he handed me the still-burning hot grill. Feeling a mix of confusion and awkwardness, I placed the grill in an empty box he had lying around, using it as a makeshift container. I thanked him, hastily left his peculiar domain, and contemplated the odd encounter on my way back to my apartment. As I settled into my new place, the tiny George Foreman grill stood as a reminder of that surreal experience. It became a story to share with friends, a tale that started with a simple Craigslist purchase but unfolded into an unexpected journey into the eccentricities of a stranger's culinary world. Little did I know that a quest for a budget-friendly appliance would leave me with not just a grill but a memory etched in the annals of my apartment living adventures.